Praise God. Uh, there's a really nice keyboard up here. I don't know. <laughs> Somebody want to take this? I'll just put it right here. All right. Praise God. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 1. Actually, Acts chapter 1 first, verses 3 through 8, and then we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 47. So great to be here to worship together. If you're joining us online, uh, I want to welcome you, and the verses are going to be on your screen at home, and if you're joining us here in person, it'll be right behind me on the screen on the wall. But Acts 1, 3 through 8, and then Acts 2, 47. This is God's word. And to them, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then look at Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory and we worship your name. We thank you for your presence that is always with us in our church. In fact, all the true churches. And I pray and ask that you would now speak through your word. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for your spirit. I pray that you would fill us both with your word and your spirit. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, you guys should know if you've been coming out that for the last few weeks we've been talking about what? Being the church. And if we're going to be the church, we have to know what? The marks of a true church. Because how can you be something that you don't know it is? So what are the marks of a true church? How do you identify a good church from a bad one? And you know, there are a few questions in life that are more important than that. You know, when I talk to people, I know that people spend a lot of time on a lot of different things. For example, people love researching cars. They spend tons of time looking at the options and the features when they're buying a new car. Yet, how much time and energy do people spend in looking for a good church? And in fact, even if they're looking for a church, they don't even know what to look for. And so what are the good marks or the marks of a good church? What defines a true church? And by now, I hope everyone can tell me what these marks are. But what are they? They are devotion to Christ and his word. They are devotion to one another. And what else? Devotion to being witnesses to the lost. So these are the three marks that come up repeatedly in Jesus' teaching. So this isn't my idea, but this is from Jesus himself. It comes up repeatedly in the New Testament letters. And these are also the three marks that you see in the early church. As you read through the book of Acts, you see it demonstrated again and again. But they were devoted to Christ and his word. They were devoted to one another, and they were devoted to being witnesses to the lost. And so for the last few weeks, we've looked at the first two, and we're not going to go over them again. And today, what I want to do is I want to finish up the third one, because last Sunday, we began talking about the third mark of a true church. But we started looking at being devoted to being witnesses to the lost. And last week, I said, this is more than a duty, brothers and sisters, but this is more than something God has laid upon our church, something we must do as Christians. 
but rather this is something we have been created to do. Amen? But we are created to be his representatives on the earth. But God told Adam and Eve, this is one of the first commands, if not the first command in scripture. Adam, Eve, go and be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. In other words, be my representative, be my instruments upon the earth. Later, Jesus gave somewhat of a different command, but it was still large, just as large in scope. He said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Again, go out into all the earth, be my representatives, be my instruments. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. So do you guys see that? Do you see how large this is? But we are created for this. In fact, every human being has been created for a life that is far bigger than ourselves. I mentioned last week how there's this echo in everyone's life in this greater purpose. There's this kind of shadow or this echo of this greater purpose in every person. Even if they don't know God, even if they don't have a clue about God's purposes, it's there. And so you hear it whenever people talk about, you know what, I want to make a big difference in the world. I want to live for something that is bigger than my own life. But you see it. But everyone is haunted by this feeling that they're here for a purpose, right? That they're supposed to do something that's much bigger than their own lives. And when you finally come to know God and his greater purpose for your life, what happens? You come alive, right? Your soul literally comes alive. This is how you begin to flourish, You know, I remember experiencing this firsthand in a very concrete way, but several years ago, we went out to the Navajo Reservation every year. Uh, We kind of stopped doing that for a little while, especially because of COVID. But I remember the last time we were out there, I went alone in this particular trip. And I didn't really want to go. I was tired and discouraged, but I finally just got myself to go out there. And there I was doing missions with a whole team, and we were doing VBS, Vacation Bible School, And one day in particular, it was a long day, and after doing vacation Bible school, we decided to wash all the vans. We had to wash all the vans. And so there we were, washing all the vans, and I was standing there with a hose, and suddenly as I looked around at all the people washing these vans with me, I got really happy. I don't know why. But joy just crashed over me. And literally, I didn't know why, but I became very happy, and later that day, I had to get on the phone and tell my wife, Jill, I feel so happy. And she's like, oh, good. (laughs) But I feel so happy. I don't know why, but I was discouraged prior to that. But here I am doing something much bigger than my own life. And your soul comes alive. So there's something wonderful that happens to your soul when you engage in something bigger than yourself. And what could be bigger than God's purpose? Amen? But God has created you to be his instrument in the world. So this is how we glorify God. Irenaeus, the church father, said, the glory of God is man fully alive. See, God seeks his own glory, but that's not something selfish, because when God is glorified, it means somebody is coming alive. See, God is glorified when we come alive with his purposes. We are created to be his witnesses. But how do we do that? So this is what we began looking at last week. But how do you actually Be his witness. How can you be his effective witness? Well, the question that people usually have when they think about being witnesses is how, right? How do I do it? So, for example, today, right after service, if we were going to go all the way to the food lab, which is a few blocks away, it's kind of like a food court, hundreds of people go there to eat, and if we were going to share the gospel and be a witness after church, then the question on your mind is probably going to be how? Right? How do I do this? 
What are the techniques, right? What are the steps I need to take? And so that's very common. And yes, those things are important. But when you look at what Jesus focused on, look at Acts 1. Okay, what did Jesus teach his disciples before he ascended up to heaven? He didn't focus on how, but rather he focused on what? Okay, he didn't focus on the steps and techniques you need to have, but rather he focused on what do you need to have, right, to be my witness. And so if you look at Acts 2, he focused on what? He focused on what they needed. And I believe he did that because more than the how, the what is the critical piece, right? More than the techniques. And sometimes he did go over techniques. I remember in Luke 10, he talked about don't carry a knapsack. When you enter someone's house, say, peace be to you. So he would give directions. But more than that, the critical piece is what do you have, right? What do you have as you go out to be my witness? And so what is it that Jesus emphasized that you need to have? Well, in Acts 1, there are two things. He spent this extended time with the disciples to make sure they had these two things. What are they? We covered it last week. Belief in the gospel and baptism in the spirit. If you're going to be his witnesses, you need to have a conviction, a belief in the gospel, and also baptism in the spirit. And so Jesus took all this time. He made sure that they had both. That they had the objective truth of the gospel, that they were convinced of it. That's why he showed them the proofs of his resurrection. He taught them about the kingdom of God. But not only that, he made sure that they would have the subjective power of the spirit, and you need both, right? If you just have objective truth, but no power, you dry up. If you have subjective power and experiences, but no objective truth, you blow up, right? But if you have both, then you raise up a mighty witness for Jesus Christ. So this is exactly what he said, Acts 1, 3 through 5. To them, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So do you see that? He made sure that they first had belief in the gospel, that they were sure in the objective truths of the gospel. But that's not all. Verse 4, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So do you see that? So it wasn't only the truths of the gospel, but he made sure, don't go anywhere. Don't leave Jerusalem. I know you're eager to go out, but stay here. Why? Because you need something else. You need to be baptized in the spirit. You need this power. And I call it subjective power, not because the focus is on the experience, but it's personal, right? It's got to be made personal. And so you need this personal experience of the baptism in the spirit. So please don't ignore this, brothers and sisters. Don't skip over this. But so many times when we think about being witnesses, we jump to the techniques. Okay, what do I do, right? Show me the steps. And yet Jesus said, before that, you need to have something. You need the conviction of the gospel and you need the baptism of the spirit. Please do not skip over that. So a deep belief and conviction in the gospel A powerful baptism in the Spirit. These are the two ingredients if you're going to be a witness. And so last week we looked at the first one, a belief in the gospel, and today we're going to look at the baptism of the Spirit. So what is that? The baptism in the Spirit. Now when you look at Jesus' disciples, they were not baptized in the Spirit right away. 
It wasn't like they spent all this time with Jesus for 40 days. They're like, wow, we're baptized, right? No, there was this progression that they went through. And it's the same progression we must go through. But there was this progression. So the first step in this progression was they first had to understand. They had to understand the baptism in the spirit. This is the first step. You cannot receive something that you don't understand. And so it says in Acts 1, 4 through 6, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here Jesus mentions for the first time baptism in the Spirit. This is the first time he mentions it in Acts 1. And this was so important for the uh, spread of the gospel that he ordered them, don't leave Jerusalem. Again, I mentioned this, but don't go anywhere until you have this. That's how important it was for them to be witnesses. And then what did the disciples say? How did they respond? Verse 6, Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So face palm, right? <laughs> so it's like, what's going on here? We saw this last week, but that question was wrong in every single way. Every part of that question was wrong. But not only was it wrong, but it had nothing to do with what Jesus just said. So in other words, the disciples didn't understand, right? They did not understand. So Jesus patiently had to explain further. He said, don't depart from Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father. John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with something else, the Holy Spirit. They still didn't understand. They asked this wrong question. So Jesus, again, patiently answered that question. It's not for you to know the times and seasons the Father is fixed by his his authority. In other words, this doesn't matter, right? Don't worry about that. And then he goes on, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And finally, the light bulb went off. Finally, they're like... Oh, oh, whatever this baptism in the Spirit is, Jesus, we still don't fully get it. But whatever that is, is going to give us power to be your witnesses throughout the city, throughout the entire region, throughout the entire world. So to a little way, that verse right there, verse 8, that's the table of contents for the book of Acts. But as you begin to read through the book of Acts, that's basically what happened. The Spirit was poured out, and then they were his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's exactly how it unfolded. But they had understanding. So eventually the disciples understood the baptism in the Spirit. So this is what we need to have as well. We need to have an understanding if we're going to receive this baptism. But what is it, though? So they had a limited understanding, but can we know more than them? Is there anything more that we can understand? Does their baptism in the Spirit apply to us? Is the baptism they receive for every believer? Is it for you and me today? And if it is, what is it? What does it look like? So these are really important questions, but they're very hard to answer. They're actually harder than they sound. And a lot has been written on this topic. A lot has been debated on this topic. So we can't go into all of that today. It won't be a full treatment. But at a minimum, here's what we can know. And today I'm going to be kind of walking through a little bit of the details of what the scripture is saying, so just bear with me. But at a minimum, we can know some things. First, this baptism in the Spirit in Acts 1 was not given so that the disciples would be converted. 
regenerated and saved. Okay, it wasn't about their salvation. No, the baptism of the Spirit was given so that they would be empowered. It wasn't about being saved. It was about being empowered to do something. What? To be Jesus' witness to the ends of the earth. Isn't that what Jesus explicitly said in verse 8? It is. And besides, we can't assume that the disciples were not saved at this point. They were saved. We actually have to believe that they were saved. This wasn't about their salvation. In fact, in John 20, a different book, in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 22, it says that Jesus specifically came to the disciples in a private room, and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So we know that they had already received the Spirit, that they had already been saved. This is before Acts 2. So what are we saying? The baptism in the Spirit at Pentecost was not for salvation. At a minimum, I think we can assume that. It wasn't about being saved. It was about being empowered. And this means what happened at Pentecost has to be different from the baptism in the Spirit that Paul talks about. Again, please bear with me. I just want you to see this. But in a different book, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul talks about the baptism in the Spirit very specifically. But what did he say? For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or freed, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Did you hear that? Paul's talking about baptism in the Spirit. But here, what is Paul talking about? It's clearly about salvation. He's talking about, we were all saved, Corinthians. Don't forget that. We were all baptized in the same Spirit into the same body. In other words, you were all saved. We were all saved by the same Spirit. So what what does this mean? This means Luke... Please pay attention here. Luke and Paul seem to be using baptism in the Spirit in different ways, right? Doesn't it seem that way? But Paul is using it to talk about salvation. Clearly, he's talking about salvation here. But Luke, in contrast, is talking about something else, being empowered to be God's witness. So is that clear? I think at a minimum, we can assume that. So in one sense, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, today if you're sitting here as a true believer, then you've already been baptized in the Spirit. How do I know that? Because Paul says that's the experience you have when you're saved. And so if you're a true believer, that's already happened to you. You know what that's like. Suddenly the reality of God's Spirit and the reality of God flooded your life, kind of like when you jump into a pool. My goodness, I didn't know God. I wasn't aware of God. Now I am flooded by God. I remember that happened to me when I was in college. I grew up in the church, but I really was saved in college. And suddenly, I just could not stop praying. I could not stop even crying at this one particular experience I had. And then after I woke up from that, or got up, I should say, everything looked different. The reality of God broke into my life. I had believed in Jesus Christ. So that is the baptism of the Spirit. It's happened to every believer. But in another sense... Not every believer has been baptized in the Spirit to be enabled to be a witness. That has not happened to every believer, according to Luke. That's a totally different experience. So we need to be clear on this. We need to know the distinction between the two different baptisms. Why? Because if we don't, you're not going to know what you have, and you're not going to know what you don't have. And we just go on as Christians, saying, oh, I'm just a Christian, I live my life. So there are two different kinds of baptisms, I believe. One according to Paul, one according to Luke. And every Christian has experienced Paul's baptism in the Spirit, but not Luke's. Okay, not Luke's. So what is this baptism in the Spirit according to Luke? Okay, what is he talking about? 
Is the baptism in the spirit the disciples had at Pentecost the same thing that we can have? Can you experience that? Again, this is a hard question. And the answer is no. And yes, right? It's both. So you're like, uh, all right. <laughs> that doesn't help me at all. But it's both. It's no and yes. And why do I say that? Well, first, it's no because when you read what happened at Pentecost, clearly this was a unique event, okay? This is not something that happened again and again in a repeated way. But this was a one-time unique event. And we know that because Luke, he describes what happened. Look at Acts 2, 1, 2, and 3. Luke said, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as in, in other words, I'm sorry, and divided tongues as, or in other words, like fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So do you see what Luke is saying? He's not saying actual wind came, but he's like something like wind came. The word is like wind. It wasn't actually tongues of fire appearing on their heads, like some real ball of fire, but it looked like tongues of fire. So Luke is grasping for terms here, images to try to describe what happened. But something like this happened. And then verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so this is a very amazing event that happened. And later in 2 verse 8, we learn that the speaking in tongues was real languages. They were speaking in real languages that they couldn't speak normally, but they were speaking the gospel in other languages that people in that city could hear and believe. And so sometimes God does that. I remember when I went to Oaxaca, Mexico, I met the pastor who was our connection, and we were eating lunch one time, and he shared, and and he just kind of said it like casually, but I said, oh, how did you learn Spanish? How did you come here and start this ministry? He's like, oh, I didn't learn Spanish. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, one day I was just, you know, listening to the radio, and he's a Korean man uh, who can speak Korean and English. But he's like, I was listening to the radio, and suddenly I thought the radio was in Korean. I'm like, what? what why is this in Korean? And then I realized, oh, it's not in Korean. It's in Spanish. And he understood every single word. And he said he became fluent from that point on. So anyway, that's besides the point. But, but I know God can do that. I met and talked to a pastor where that literally happened to him. And I heard him preach in Spanish. He's telling jokes. And, you know, he was wonderful. But he's like, I never learned it. God just gave it to me. But this is kind of like what happened here in chapter 2, verse 8. But they were speaking in other tongues, other languages that they did not learn. They couldn't speak before. So clearly, this was miraculous. And then you read through the book of Acts, it never happens again. You never see this happening again in this way. So what am I saying? What the disciples experienced at Pentecost was an utterly unique event. The experience, the baptism of the spirit, spirit they had, in many ways is not what we will experience. So the answer is no. We will not have the same kind of baptism in the spirit. That was Pentecost. But, okay, so but, when you keep reading through the book of Acts, there's something more though. There are more outpourings of the Spirit that look kind of like Pentecost. So you see this one gigantic Pentecost, and later in the book of Acts, as you keep reading, you see these little Pentecosts that keep seem to happening. And they're not the same, but they kind of look the same. They kind of look like what happened at Pentecost. And I wish we had time to go through each of these. But you see this happening in Acts 10 to a bunch of Gentiles. This one family, Cornelius, was a Gentile. Gentile just means non-Jewish. But this non-Jewish family, this Roman family, and then it happens again in Acts 19 to the disciples of John. 
So you see this kind of mini Pentecost that kind of looks like Pentecost, but isn't Pentecost. It happens again. And there are important similarities, but also important differences. And we don't have time to go into all of that, but I'd be happy to talk to anybody who's curious. But here's the key. Here's the key. No matter what baptism in the Spirit is like, this is what the Bible makes clear. This is something every believer has experienced and must experience. Okay, both. You have experienced that as a believer, and you must experience that again and again and again. Well, actually, you should experience that at least once. So going back to what I said earlier, according to Paul, you've already experienced this when you were saved. And according to Luke, you must experience this if you're going to be his witness. You have to be baptized in the Spirit. And it's really interesting, but when you look, look at Acts 2 again, how did Luke describe this baptism in the Spirit? How did Luke describe it? Look at verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So to Luke, this isn't just salvation. This is different. He called it being filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. So let me put all this together. If you're getting lost, don't worry. Let me try to summarize it here. But what is the baptism in the Spirit? Again, you can't receive something you don't know. What is this? When Luke said baptize in the Holy Spirit, what is he talking about? I believe he's talking about the first experience a believer has when you receive the fullness of the Spirit. When you, for the first time in your life, are filled to the fullness of the Spirit, you have been baptized in the Spirit. And this filling of the Spirit to fullness is something that you are commanded to do, commanded to receive. Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so do you understand that? So when Luke talks about being baptized in the Spirit, he's talking about the first time. As a Christian, and maybe this didn't happen when you first got saved. You were baptized in the Spirit in terms of salvation, but you never got filled to the fullness. And so here you are living your Christian life, and you're just kind of doing your own thing, and then one day, boom, right? Maybe you're at church, maybe you're reading a Christian book or just praying, and suddenly God just fills you to the full. And you don't understand quite exactly what's happening, but in that moment you have been baptized in the Spirit. Does that make sense? You have been baptized in the Spirit. And so at that point, you have been filled fully by the Spirit, and that is the same thing as being filled fully with Christ. Okay, when you're filled with something, you are under the influence and control of that thing. Okay, you know that. If you're filled with hunger, what's going on? Okay, hunger is controlling you. You're like, I got to eat. I got to go somewhere. I got to eat. But if you are filled with the Spirit, it's the same thing. You are being controlled. You are under the influence of the Spirit. And in fact, it is the influence of Christ. And that is how you are going to be a witness. Okay, that is how we're going to be a mighty witness for Christ. And again, for some people, you've experienced this right when you got saved. At the moment of conversion, not only were you saved, you were filled to the full. You were baptized in the Spirit. Both according to Luke's definition and Paul's definition. Okay, both happened. Okay, you know that. Both happened. And this is likely what happened to Cornelius in Acts 10. This is what happened to the disciples of John and Acts 19. This is probably what happened to them. But for other people, and this is probably a lot of you, a lot of, you know, a lot of people I've talked to, but 
But they were saved and they were baptized in the Spirit, according to Paul, right? That's Paul's definition. But they never experienced the fullness of the Spirit. And so what happens? You get saved, you believe in Jesus, enough to go to church, enough to believe that you're a Christian, and then you begin to walk and live your life like everybody else. Okay, there's not much that looks different from the world. And you try your best to be a Christian. You try your best to walk with Christ and follow the Bible. But a lot of it is just kind of, I don't know. I'm just doing it in my own efforts. I'm doing it under my own guidance. And if that's you, you have enough of the Spirit to believe, and yet you have not been baptized in the Spirit through His fullness. And I believe this is why so many Christians say that they believe. They, they, they walk with Jesus, and yet there's no power. They lack power. They lack holiness. They lack the qualities that you see in the early church. Do they have the Holy Spirit? Yes, of course they do. They were baptized in the Spirit, according to Paul. But they were never filled to the full. So your life is just kind of like everyone else. It's under your own strength, under your own guidance. So I think this explains a lot. Okay, When I talk to a lot of Christians, and you know, I'm on YouTube a lot, looking at the testimony of a lot of churches out there, what's going on in the church landscape, and... There are a lot of problems. Okay, we all know that. A lot of Christians look just like the world. One of the saddest things that I've heard is Christians divorce at the same rate as non-Christians. Okay, that's something that's commonly repeated. But why is that? What could it be? It's not because they're not true believers, but could it be that they have never been baptized in the Spirit? They've never received the fullness of the Spirit. So we all need the fullness of the Spirit's filling. And for those of you who have never experienced that, I want to say to you, very directly, you need the baptism in the Spirit. You need that. You need to be baptized in the Spirit. You need that first experience of the Spirit's fullness. So this is our understanding. If you're going to receive the Spirit's baptism, you have to understand that. The disciples understood it, but that's not all. From there, they progressed to now desiring the baptism in the Spirit. So this is the second thing. They desire the baptism in the Spirit. So when you look at Acts 1, 8 and 14, you see this desire. So look there. But baptism in the Spirit, this became lit in the disciples' hearts. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then the very next thing you see them doing is in verse 14. How do they respond? All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So what is that? Desire. Right? They heard what Jesus promised. Not years from now, not even months from now, but just days from now, you're going to receive this gift, the baptism of the Spirit. You're already saved. You already received the Spirit in John 20. But you're going to receive the fullness, the first experience of the Spirit's fullness. And what happened? Desire. We want this. We want to be his witnesses. We want this fullness of the Spirit. So they had this desire. And I want to dig a little bit deeper, but where did this, uh, did this desire come from? Okay, what did they know that we need to know? Well, first, they knew that they were called to an impossible task. Okay, we can't do this on our own. Look at verse 8 again. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Do you see how big that is? Do you know that's what Jesus is calling all of us to do is go to the ends of the earth? You know, I, I imagine whenever I read that, the small band of disciples, okay, they don't have smartphones. Okay, they're wearing sandals. Just a small group. 
And then Jesus says, go to the ends of the earth. And you kind of look at them uh, just looking at each other. <laughs> They're like, uh, where is that Jesus? You know, a lot of them haven't even been beyond 100 miles from their hometown. But which way is that? Where do we go? They said, there's no way. They had no idea how to do this. And so the scope was too big for them. But also look at what Jesus was implying. But when he said, you will be my witnesses, what I believe he's saying is, you're going to be my fruitful witnesses. He's not saying you're going to go out there and fail. He's saying you're going to be my effective witnesses. You're going to actually bear fruit. You're going to actually bring salvation and conversion to the ends of the earth. That is breathtaking. That should stop us in our tracks when you truly realize how hard that is. In fact, it's impossible. Why? Because we are called to go and preach and share something that nobody wants. But the Bible is very clear. But the unbeliever has a hardened heart. They don't want God. They don't want Jesus. They don't want what we have. This is a business. I know one of my professors in seminary called what we do on Sunday a good business product. I didn't like that, but that's what he called it. Actually, I don't like that at all. <laughs> but but if this was a business product, this is the worst product ever because nobody wants it. The unbeliever has a hardened heart. The unbeliever is blinded from the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. The unbeliever is dead in sin. They are completely dead to who God is. They don't want God, Ephesians 2. So if you have a non-Christian friend or family member, they don't want what you have. They don't want it. Okay, if you begin to share, oh, you know, Bob, can I talk to you about the gospel? They don't want it. They don't want to hear about Jesus. I've experienced this many times with my own family members. But they are dead to God. And not only that, but think about the message of the gospel itself. Think about how hard it is to communicate this. But sometimes people, or oftentimes, they water it down to make it sound good. But the gospel in and of itself is a stumbling block. It is hard. It is a hard message. It is, yes, the good news. But before the good news, there is bad news, terrible news. And so the gospel is something that people do not want to hear. And this is why every time the gospel was preached in the New Testament, it caused a revolt or a revival. You can't be biased. You can't, I mean, I'm sorry, you can't be neutral. You're going to be biased. You're going to either receive it or you're going to reject it wholesale. But it is a hard message. But the gospel, it is the good news. But why? Because there is a bad news. There is the bad news that for all eternity, Somebody who has rejected God and sinned against God will be under God's wrath and be sent to hell for all eternity. No matter what you do, you are not good enough ever to go to heaven. Your righteous deeds are filthy rags, the Bible says. You can never save yourself. It's like climbing out of a pit that is far too tall for you to climb out of. You can never climb out of this pit. You can never live righteously enough. You can never do enough spiritual things to please God. God says they're all filthy rags. And yet, by only repenting and believing what somebody else has done. So now the ball's taken out of your court. Okay, we always want to do something. No, the ball's taken out of your court. Only what somebody else has done. Okay, a lot of people, they get offended by that. It's kind of like when you go to McDonald's and you want to pay for someone's meal. They're like, no, 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 right? And you get, to, you get into this huge fight in front of the restaurant. It's kind of like that. It's like, no, I don't want somebody to pay my way. Okay, I'm going to pay my own way. It's like, No. And yet the gospel says, well, then you're going to be condemned because Jesus has paid your way. And so there's nothing you can do. You must either accept this free gift or you're going to be condemned. And so that is the message of the gospel. 
And only those who humble themselves and gladly receive it will be saved. And so think about that. Think about how hard that is. Okay, who out there who is making something of their lives and working hard, building a business, okay, going to school, making good grades? I mean, who wants to hear something like that? There's nothing I can do? I'm just a condemned sinner? I'll never be able to please God? And yet, this is exactly what Jesus asked his followers to preach everywhere. So now, to bring it, like, really home to us being witnesses, do you think making some brownies and having some nice conversations with your neighbor, do you think that's going to save them? Again, I'm not saying don't do that. I mean, we should do that. I try to, this past Christmas, I actually took a bag of cookies from my neighbor. They first gave us cookies, and then I gave them cookies. And So anyway, I mean, we should do things like that. But do you think that's going to save them by bringing some brownies, right? That they're going to hear and accept this gospel message that they are condemned sinners who's going to face eternal judgment before a holy God. Do you think they're going to want to hear that? There's nothing that they can do to be saved by this God, that they must utterly humble themselves and place their lives in God's hands and what Christ has done. No, they're not going to. Then how are you going to be a witness? You must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I'm emphasizing this, brothers and sisters, because Jesus did. Don't go out. Don't try to be my witness without this. You're a fool if you are. You must have the conviction in the gospel, and you must be baptized in the Spirit. You must have both. So it is only the power of the Spirit that will convert a hardened heart and bring salvation. It's only the Spirit who will work through your brownies, right, and through your conversations. So do those things, but it's the Spirit who will work through them. You know, this is one of my favorite quotes by G.K. Chesterton, but he said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And I think this is a lot of reason why a lot of people reject Christianity. It's too hard. How, how do I do this? How do I live this holy life? Okay, everything in me screams the opposite. So how do we do this? Well, actually, I think the problem is the opposite today. I think more Christians actually see the Christian life as very easy and very casual. Maybe in Chesterton's day, it was the opposite. But in this day, I think most Christians see it as far too easy. Right? They say it's all grace. And what kind of grace are we talking about? Grace to do what? Well, grace to just be saved and live my own life, right? But for them, Christianity is something to just inject into their busy life. And I'm just going to add it on, and I'm a Christian. I'm just going to go to heaven one day. It's like fire insurance, but I'm just going to do my own thing. But then clearly in Scripture, that is not the true Christian life. But rather, the Christian life is supernatural. It is impossible on their own. For me, the evidence of true Christianity is not that it is difficult, but that it is actually impossible. And through God's power, you are now doing something that you could never do on your own. You know, my bro- uh, some brothers in my CG were talking about this. I think it was CG or maybe discipleship. But we were talking about this one verse where Paul, he said to the Corinthians, you guys are just t- acting like mere human beings. I-, I love that verse. But he rebuked them. Can you imagine being rebuked like that? Stop acting human, right? You're acting like mere human beings. In other words, don't you know, as believers, you're called to be something so much more, something supernatural. So this is the true Christian life. You know, I heard someone once saying to a pastor, the way you preach makes Christianity difficult to follow. And in response to that, that pastor didn't say anything, but I think this is something that he could have said. He could have said, oh, I'm sorry. 
I should have preached in a way that makes Christianity impossible, right? Not just hard, but impossible. So I hope you get that here. But I hope week after week you come here and you're discouraged. Why? So that you could be encouraged to truly live the life God has, right? Not to just try to do something on your own. Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Nothing of eternal worth. Nothing that pleases God. You can do absolutely zero. Jesus said it. You're a big fat zero. I'm a big fat zero without the Spirit. And yet with the Spirit, all things are possible. Amen? All things are possible. So being Jesus' witness is impossible on our own. This is why we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's as simple as that. The second reason they were desperate and they desired this is they knew that what they had was not enough. What they had was not enough. And I'm going to just kind of run through this more quickly. But it's amazing. But when you look at verses 2 through 3, you see what they had. But they had the gospel. He, Jesus showed them the proofs of his resurrection. He taught them for 40 days on the kingdom of God. They had the gospel. And not only that, but they actually had the physical resurrected Christ in front of them. And yet that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough. And so that's amazing to me. That even with the physical resurrected Christ in front of them and the gospel being taught to them directly from him, that wasn't enough to be his witness. And so this is another reason why they started desiring the baptism of the Spirit. They knew what we have is not enough. And so in the same way, if we have the gospel, and we do, if you believe in your heart, Jesus really rose from the dead, and you should, right, as a believer. But even with that, if you don't have the baptism in the Spirit, then you don't have enough. You do not have enough. We need the baptism of the Spirit. We need the lavish outpouring of the Spirit to empower us, to give us joy, to give us extraordinary ability to share the gospel, to touch people's hearts, to convict them of sin. The Spirit is what does all of that. The Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, that is the spark that produces the fire, right? The fire of salvation, conversion, revival. You know, I remember one time I went camping with a bunch of guys, and it was kind of a sad trip because we were excited to be there, and we gathered all this wood, we spent all this time, and we carefully built this fire uh, place, you know, kind of like the teepee, uh, using the wood. And I remember afterwards, we were excited to light the fire and cook our dinner, and then we realized nobody brought the lighter fluid. So nobody, so there we were with this beautiful, uh, you know, uh, formation of wood, and we couldn't light it. And so we spent the entire night just staring at this beautiful wood, right? And I feel like a lot of times that's how Christians are. But they have the gospel and they stare at it, they study it, they talk about it, they come to church, they hear about it, and yet it's nothing more than just staring at beautiful wood that's never lit on fire because they don't have the baptism, the filling of the Spirit. You know, over the years I've heard many people say, I'm not ready to share my faith. And the reason they give is, I just need to learn more theology. You know, what if people ask me about dinosaurs? How am I going to answer that, right? How am I going to talk about evolution? And so they refuse to share their faith. And should you know more theology? Yes. Should you answer these questions to a degree? Yes. And so these things are important. And yet, even if you had all of those answers, are you going to be able to convert someone's heart? Again, the answer is no. The answer is no. You cannot convict somebody of their sin. I remember when I was living in college um, with a bunch of guys. One of the guys was a non-believer. And I remember answering a lot of these questions, not just me, but other guys with me, answering this man's questions. He had this young man. He had all these questions. 
But over time, as we kept answering these questions, we began to realize, you know what? It's not really the questions that are the issue, but the real issue is that he doesn't want to give up his life of sin. And so we kind of gave up. We're like, how do we do that? How do we convince this guy to give up his life of sin? Again, it's only the baptism of the Spirit. You need the power of the Spirit. So how much do you understand all of this? And because of that, how much do you desire the fullness of the Spirit? How thirsty are you? This is one of the prerequisites. Jesus said in John 7, 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now this he said about the Spirit. Okay, only if you thirst, I'm going to give you the Spirit. So are you thirsty? Listen to John Stott. He's one of the greatest Bible teachers in his generation, already passed away. But listen to him. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. And when he says Christian discipleship, he just means the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life would be impossible. Without the Holy Spirit, the normal Christian life would be inconceivable, impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from the spirit's fruit, no effective witness without the spirit's power, as a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. Those are powerful words. So we as a church, we could get excited, sing songs, you know, try to learn the Bible, but if we do not have the power of the Spirit, we are dead. We are dead. So how much do you desire the Spirit? And then finally, we're going to wrap it up quickly with this, but receive the Spirit. Okay, the third thing the disciples did was they received the baptism of the Spirit. And there are a few things that I want to quickly mention, but how do you receive the baptism of the Spirit? Well, again, when you look at the early church, you can see a few things. But I believe, like we just saw, they confessed their need. That's one of the first things I believe they did. But they confessed that they are weak. How do we do this, Jesus? How are we going to share the gospel to the ends of the earth and convert hardened hearts? How do we do this? Again, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm sure they remember that. Jesus said that before he died. But they remember that. How are we going to do this, Jesus? So they confess their need. Not only that, but confess your sin. I'm sure they confess their sin as well. When you think about filling a cup full of water, that's kind of the image the Bible has of being spirit-filled. But if that cup already is filled with, let's say, old milk, I mean, are you going to pour fresh water in there? No. Okay, you're not going to pour something new into a cup that's already filled with something else. So you must dump that out if you're going to fill it with fresh new water. And that's the same thing with us. If you're going to be filled with the Spirit, you got to confess your sin. you got to empty yourself of all the sin and the rebellion in your heart and confess them. Confess them. You need to be emptied first of all this sin in our lives. So what this means is not that you must be perfect, but you must be right. You must be right with God. You must be right with the Holy Spirit. How many of you guys know that you can't be filled with the Spirit at the same time as grieving the Spirit? You can't do both. You cannot simultaneously be grieving the Spirit and expect to be filled by the Spirit. He will not do it. Ephesians 4.30, do not be grieved, or I'm sorry, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then later Ephesians 5, he says, rather, be filled by the Spirit. It's one or the other. So that's the first thing, confess your sin. Second, trust. You must trust. Trust who? Christ. 
because he is the one who will give the spirit without measure into your heart. Acts 1.4, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Okay, what is he saying? That promise is from me. I'm going to give you the spirit. This is my promise to you. So Jesus is the one who promised the spirit. And he did this repeatedly. John 7, 38, 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit. Okay, don't miss that first part. Whoever, what, believes in me. Right? Why? Why do you have to believe in Jesus? Because he's the one who gives you the spirit. So you must trust in Jesus. This faith, right? This is what brings the Spirit's filling in your life. And this faith, it's not, kind of, it's not like climbing a ladder. I think sometimes we see faith as like another kind of work. But I like what this one pastor said. I was in this one prayer cohort, a bunch of pastors. But he said, faith is not so much climbing a ladder, but it's more like falling into a pit, a pit where Jesus is at. But you must fall into this pit where Jesus is. You must rest in Jesus' arms if you're going to have this faith that receives the Spirit. So that's number two. Okay, just two more and we're going to close. Three, ask. You need to ask. So much in our Christian lives we don't have. Why? Because you do not ask, James said. You don't have because you do not ask. Acts 1.14, they asked. The early church asked. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They were asking again and again and again. Lord, you promised in a few days we're going to be baptized by the Spirit, right? Lord, please, please don't forget. Lord, please, pour out your Spirit. Baptize us in the Spirit. Like little children coming. I have three little kids, and they just come, and they have no concern what I'm doing, right? I could be doing, like, brain surgery. And, and they're going to be like, Daddy, I want this, right? And they'll interrupt. Sometimes I wonder if they're going to come while I'm preaching, and they just interrupt, right? Just give me this. But they just have no guile. They have no you know, sense of anything else other than I have this need. So just please, Lord, please fill me by your spirit. Do you ask? Luke eleven thirteen. Jesus made it so clear. If you then who are evil, talking to all of us, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You must ask. Ask. Just ask him like a child. And then finally, the last step is act. If you're going to receive the Spirit, you must act in faith that I am now filled by the Spirit because I've confessed my sin. I've trusted in Christ. I've asked him. And now in faith, I'm just going to act on it. I'm going to act on it. And so this is what Peter did on Pentecost Day, Acts 2.14. And Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them all. And he preached a glorious gospel message. 3,000 were saved. The church was born. But he stood up and he acted on this belief that now he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this is my final point, brothers and sisters. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, you must act on it. You know, I remember experiencing this the very first sermon I ever gave. And I was thinking about this this morning, driving to church. But it's like, wow, it's already been like almost 30 years. No, no, not that long. 25 but I remember the very first sermon I preached, I was a junior in college. I was invited to speak at my youth group, right, Sunday service. And so I put on this suit. I was like 120 pounds. My suit was way too big for me. And I had my sermon. I, I still remember. It was on Jesus, your treasure. It was on Jesus being your treasure. And so I had my sermon. I had my, you know, suit on. And I was sitting there waiting for my turn to get up. And I was just scared, right? My knees were knocking. 
I was so scared. My tongue was like this big, right? I could barely talk. I think I even went blind at one point, right? I couldn't even see. I was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing, right? What am I going to do? And yet, without even knowing fully all the aspects of being filled by the Spirit, I just said, Jesus, help me. Just help me, right? Just fill me by your Spirit. And I went up there, and the moment I opened my Bible, right? I don't know what it was. I just immediately became calm, and I just gave my sermon. I don't even know what I really said, but I just gave my first sermon. And so I've experienced that, and that has happened repeatedly over the years. But you merely trust you confess, you ask, and then you act on it, and God is faithful. Amen? So let's just come before the Lord. But what we do every Sunday is we respond to the Word of God. But let's bow our heads. But Father God, we thank you so much, Lord. But we want to be people who are filled by your Spirit. We want to be people who don't just open our mouths and declare the first thing that crosses our minds. Just blurting out some random facts about God and Jesus. But we want to be true witnesses, convicted in the gospel, baptized in the spirit. We want to be true witnesses, God. So please help us. And so please help us, Father, even now. I pray that even as we sit here, that you would baptize many here, Lord, if they've never experienced the first filling of the Spirit. The first full filling of the Spirit. Then, Lord, baptize them. Baptize them in the Spirit. And for the rest of us who have received that, Lord, fill us again. That verse, Lord, that you gave to us is a repeated, continuous command in an ongoing way, be filled. So, Lord God, we want to obey. Lord, fill us in an ongoing way, please. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. come before him and I don't have much more to say other than ask let's just ask God Jesus can you fill us with your Holy Spirit if you need to get right with God and confess your sins then please do that humble yourself like a little child Ask. Thank you, Lord.